Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Bell. I don't know if you've ever tried to vomit quietly. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say I forgot. I forgot a couple of weeks ago to give a shout-out to one of our newest Patreon members, Portia Hunt. Whenever someone becomes a member for $25 or more per month, we're sure to give them a shout-out. Holy crap, we appreciate it so much. You know, we're trying to create more and more of a communal engagement sort of thing over there at Patreon. We have all these check-ins that I do. Uh, We're trying to get people like you to share your stories. If there's a particular story you've heard on Risk that really affected you and maybe inspired you to do something or kind of shifted your perspective on something, and you want to share the story of what that was like for you, you know, what a story meant for you, kind of unpack a story you heard on Risk, make a little voice memo of it about, you know, four or five minutes long, email it to me at kevin at risk-show.com. I'm going to be sharing a lot of these on those check-ins that I do once a week over there at Patreon. We also have tons of bonus stories, and you have no idea what's going to happen. I don't even know what's going to happen in those check-ins that I do. I I burst into tears (laughs) on a recent one. It got very, very personal and emotional. So JC was saying just the other day that if everyone who listened to the show regularly, the people who, you know, even if they just check it out once a month and hear a couple of episodes, but they're pretty regular about checking out risk. If everyone gave us one or $2 per month over there, which you can totally opt to do, you can pay that little, that would actually totally revolutionize this show. We could hire story producers, to be going out there in the world seeking stories rather than counting on stories coming to us. Something like that, that amount of support coming to us, people becoming members of the community that way, would absolutely change our bandwidth of what we were capable of doing with this show. It would expand 
what we were able to do tremendously. So uh, become a member. We're going to be working on all sorts of new prizes, new special offers, you know, new bonus content over there at Patreon. So definitely check it out at patreon.com slash risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Esbjorn Svensson Trio. Behind me now, we're calling this week's episode Setbacks. Three stories of people uh, making the very most out of unexpected twists in their lives. (laughs) I think a lot of us are feeling some setbacks in our nation, some Really, really, really disturbing stuff going on. There is a website called What Do I Do About Trump.com, which is a giant list of all kinds of activism, all kinds of organizations, all kinds of efforts, some very easy, some, you know, more involved, ways that you can do things to like attempt to turn the tide away from the hate and fear and cruelty that is uh, all around us now. In the meantime, we're going to keep helping people share their true feelings about things in an effort to, you know, try to add a little goodness in the world that way. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear (laughs) from someone I have been very dear friends with since kindergarten. David Bell is a novelist. Uh, His novels are spectacular. He writes psychological thrillers mostly. His latest one called Layover is getting all kinds of rave reviews about a man who, who meets a mysterious, beautiful stranger in an airport and soon thereafter realizes she's all over the news as being a missing person. But before we get to David Bell... We're going to hear from one of my favorite storytellers from the Los Angeles area. Shauna McGarry is always a delight to have on the show. Uh, She's a writer for the wonderful show BoJack Horseman on Netflix. And you can find her on Instagram at Shauna McG. Here is Shauna now with a story we call A Dreamer Schemer Spendthrift. All right, so because growing up, my family never had any money, 
My mom was the queen of weird deals and coupon meals and everything regifted from a thrift store. Like we had a, if you needed a gift, she would decoupage a lamp with paper flowers. You know, decoupage is just like a shitty, fancy word for glue. Um, one time, mom bought all of us in the family. There's five of us: my dad, my mom, my brother, two brothers, me. These extra, extra large. <laughs> denim jackets from Kmart because they were 80% off. Like, we were big kids, but we weren't that big. Um, And of all the traits that I have from my mom, the one that I carry with me is this inability to buy anything full price. And I just can't shake it. Like, I wish I could buy a jean jacket now that's expensive and designer, that would fit me perfectly, so I could be like Obama. But instead, I have this jean jacket that I bought at a thrift store that doesn't close over my boobs. Um, (laughs) And I'm an adult woman and I work really hard and I work all the time and I'm in my mid-30s and I'm married and we don't have children, me and my husband. So there are some times where we could buy something at full price, but I can't because it's painful, because of the Tao of mom (laughs) and this identity I inherited from her. I call it the dreamer, schemer, spendthrift. Uh, everything all the time. I am just trying to get and make better through my own DIY cheap ideas, and they have to be these romantic, wonderful things. And I'm just really embarrassed to tell you this thing that I bought. Um, It's this embarrassing group of words, and what's more embarrassing is my excuse for buying it, which is, um, I have internal hemorrhoids. Um... (laughs) Because I went through this period of intense grief a few years ago, and I hold all my stress inside like one of those canned snakes, and because all I do is sit all day at my job. At my job, there was like this really bad time a few months ago where it was just so bad, and um, our chairs are really, really shitty at work, and so I went into my boss's office, and I was like, hi, Steve, um, can I talk to you? Um, I need to tell you something. And he seriously looked so ashen, as if I was about to, like, hashtag me to somebody, because I I work in TV, and that could happen, and he's just been waiting for it. And I just sat down, and I said, "Um, Steve, the chairs are so shitty. And I have a bad butt, and you really need to replace the chairs. And he looked so relieved, as if he had lost his wedding ring and then found it again. And he bought us all new chairs, and I was a hero. Um, So for hemorrhoids, you can help them with something called a sitz bath. And I'm going to read what this is, because it's truly disgusting, and I don't want to get it wrong. It's a warm, shallow bath that cleanses the perineum, or taint, which is the space between the rectum and the vulva, or scrotum. So you can buy sitz baths from CVS. They're like these little basins that you put on top of your toilet, and you just sit there in this tiny little pool of warm water, and it calms your bum, and it's about $20. Um, Or... Or you can 
hear from your rich friend um, that she goes on a three-mile walk every morning and then meditates in her jacuzzi while the sun rises, and it's really helped her hemorrhoids that she got from a difficult pregnancy, not just from being herself. Um, So I become obsessed with getting a jacuzzi. I think they might help me, like, alleviate my hemorrhoids. I think they might make me start exercising and meditating. (laughs) Um, And so I'm going to buy a hot tub. And um, I'm so embarrassed to tell you that I bought a hot tub. And I'm more embarrassed to tell you how many times I'm going to use the two words hot tub together in earnest in the next five minutes. Um, It's going to be a lot. So... My husband is so sweet, and he (laughs) used to live, when we first met, in this beautiful white studio. It had a couch and a bed and a bookshelf just big enough for all of the books that really meant something to him, and he called himself an essentialist. And then he met me, (laughs) and uh, a girl predisposed to internal hemorrhoids and buying shitty romantic things on a whim for as cheap as possible whenever she could. And I don't know if he was bored, but he married me, and now he's stuck. Um, So I start researching hot tubs. They're hard to find, like online, you know, um, the price and stuff. They're like one of those elusive things. So I go to a hot tub store in Pasadena, which are a lot like car dealerships where their shiny things are right there, but you have to be there for like four hours before you can take one home. And the guys wear shitty ties. And um, I do what's called a dry sit, which they let you go in the hot tub if you take off your shoes. So you're just in your socks. And you go in and you sit down. And they say, doesn't that feel nice? And you say, I think, yes. And they say, can you feel the jets? And you say, mm, Yes. And then he tells you that the hot tub that you want, which is just a two-person triangular hot tub, very small, very modest, is $6,000. And in the color you want, it's $300 more than that. And I'm like, no fucking way am I buying a 6300 hemorrhoid fixer. That's just ridiculous. And I go home and I tell my husband what happened. And he says, honey, is a hot tub really that important to you? And I'm like, no, I guess not. And he's like, because, you know, I could draw you a bath like every night. And I'm like, that is so sweet. And after my really shitty bath, because our tub is really short and I'm 5'9", and it's either this half or this half is fully above water, um, I start secretly looking at hot tubs on Craigslist. I uh, find a hot tub from a guy who calls himself a refurbished hot tub dealer. He's been doing it since 1999, and his name is Dan. And I find the exact hot tub I was looking at for less than half of the price. And that is my first affair that I begin after getting married six months ago. It's a text affair, and it's not sexual or romantic, but it goes on for weeks and weeks, and Dan and I talk about everything there is to talk about about hot tubs. Voltage, LED lights, temperature. (laughs) And then my husband and I go on our honeymoon, and Dan texts me that he can hold the hot tub I want for me. And I'm like, (laughs) no, that is ridiculous. I'm not going to just ask this guy off Craigslist to hold a hot tub for $2,500 that I've never seen or blah, blah, blah. Yes, I tell him to hold the hot tub. (laughs) 
And the whole time we're in Europe, I keep up the text affair with Dan, and we're working out when he's going to come and deliver the hot tub. And then we get home from Europe, and we're both so jet-lagged. And the next morning, I say to my husband, so honey, um, Dan could deliver the hot tub tonight. And my husband looks at me, and he says, who's Dan? And so then I have to tell him everything, and I say, I just think it's a really good idea to get it, and it's so cheap, and and we can do it before we lay down grass, which we've been doing some stuff in our backyards. We've been laying down grass, and he just kind of squints at me in this way that I'm very familiar with now, which means, like, I could fight you, but I'm... I want to preserve my essentialist energy, so I'm just going to squint. And for the rest of this story, just imagine my very cute husband squinting, okay? This is just... So, (laughs) my husband goes to work, and I go to the bank and get $2,500 in cash for Dan. (laughs) And then that night, Dan's supposed to come over at 7 p.m., which so we can both, me and my husband, be there after work, which is late, but early enough. And then he runs into traffic, so he doesn't get there till 8.30. And he shows up with a huge truck with a huge hitch trailer on the back that holds two hot tubs. And I am so excited because the existence of two hot tubs means that he's legit. Like he really does sell hot tubs. And I look at my husband, oh my God, honey, look, two hot tubs. And my husband is just squinting. And Dan uh, takes a very long time to back up into our driveway with the trailer. And then he gets out and he preps the hot tub. He makes sure that I like it. I don't know what I'm looking at. It looks like a hot tub. It looks fine. And he rolls out this blue tarp as if it's the yellow brick road all the way to the corner where we're going to put the hot tub. And then he asks if he can wash his hand with hand soap, which is something he asks like eight more times throughout the night. I have no idea why. And he rolls the triangle of our hot tub into the corner. And then, as he's filling it up with water, he starts, like, waxing philosophical about, like, our new life with the hot tub. He's telling us about pH balances, and he's saying, like, you know, you can put, like, a shelf right above here for your drinks. You'll see. (laughs) He's like, you're going to spend all your time in this hot tub. I haven't even sat in my couch for months. You'll see. And he folds the top in half so that it's half open, and he goes like, and you can use this for like a table when you and your wife eat in the hot tub? You'll see. And my husband and I are like, you eat in your hot tub? And he says, oh yeah, all the time. We don't even have a dining room table. And he's like, you're going to see, your mind is going to go crazy with all the dreams you have and you can do with this hot tub. It's going to change your life. And I'm liking Dan because he's like speaking my language. But it's getting dark. Like we can't see anything anymore. And he's still filling up the hot tub. And finally it's full. And he says, well, just let it heat up through the night. See how it goes. Um, You got yourselves a good hot tub here. And we're like, thank you. He looks like like a stretched out John Malkovich, like a cowboy version, like with the cowboy shirt and the boot cut jeans. So we're very wary of him, but he seems okay enough. And then he leaves. And my husband and I are so jet lagged that we just crash and we're kind of excited. Oh, maybe tomorrow in the morning we can go in the hot tub. And then I get a text from Dan and it says, I forgot to check something. Do you mind if I come back? And I say, well, sure, but we're in bed. Do you need us? And he says, no. And I said, well, then you can just let yourself in the back. And so I kind of doze off again. And then a couple minutes later, wake up because I forgot to take off my contact. And I just look outside our bedroom window because it has a direct view of the hot tub to see if Dan is still there. And then I see 
that the hot tub is on fire. <laughs> and I turned to my husband very calmly because that's how I, I hold it in and I, had, I get hemorrhoids, but externally, I am so calm. I'm like the best babysitter. Um, I was for a long time. And I say, honey, and he's like asleep. And I say, um, the hot tub's on fire. And then we both jump up and we're not wearing shoes and we run out. And Dan is there and he's got our hose and he's got the control, like the panel open. There's a panel that comes off the front of a hot tub where all the electricity actually is. And he's hosing it off with water because flames are shooting. Huge flames are shooting. It's like an extra, extra large denim jacket on a child um, in our small backyard (laughs) kind of flames. And he finally gets the fire out and then there's smoke and then there's nothing, just this cowboy and us and we're just staring at him. He's telling us what happened, which is that he was kind of concerned about this one light and it was bugging him, so we came back to check on it and he was just cleaning this one thing and he points to a can of spray cleaner and he's like, and then that thing, it just combusted. I mean, the hot tub didn't catch on fire. It was that can of cleaner. And we're like, what? And he's so nervous, but he's trying to act cool like John Wayne and he keeps trying to light a clove cigarette after the fire. And my husband and I are just so shocked that we literally can't do anything. We're just watching him and he offers the cigarette to us and we're both like no thank you and then he um says well uh do you have a hair dryer and I'm like I think so and I go in my bedroom and it's up on a high shelf because I never dry my hair and I take it down and he unplugs the hot tub plugs in the hair dryer and starts blowing the controls with the hair dryer and he just starts saying different things we can do like we can get a tv with a jib arm you'll see and we're like what? And he unplugs the dryer, gives it back to me, plugs back in the hot tub, let that run all night. And then he's gone again. And I wake up at like one, and my husband says, let's go to bed with the window open in case it starts firing again. (laughs) And I wake up at like 1 a.m. to see if it's heating up. And no, it turned the fuck off. It like glitched because... He caught it on fire, and then it, and then he doused it with like about a, three buckets of elef, like Dumbo elephant water. So the next morning, the hot tub's off, and my husband very calmly says, "Honey, I think we should return the hot tub." So I say, "Thank you, yes," and I'm so relieved. And I text Dan, and I say, "Thank you so much." And we know it was an accident, and thank you for all your hard work with the rolling the tub. Um, you know, but just because it caught on fire, I think we want to return it. <laughs> And then because you douse the electrical panel with, like, all that water. And at first, he's really understanding. He's like the Dan from our our text affair. He's, like, going to come and pick up the hot tub. And then slowly, he refuses to pick up the hot tub. And he says that it's working. And we're like, no, it's not. And my husband gets him on the phone, and they agree to meet at the house to exchange the $2,500 cash that I gave him for the hot tub. And we're waiting and we're waiting and the phone call never comes to say that he's 10 minutes away. And then we get a text from him five hours later saying that he came to our house without us knowing, replaced everything that needed to be replaced from the fire, and that we had the best hot tub on the market and to enjoy it, kids. And he won't take a return. (laughs) So we have a hot tub. Um, We were thinking about like small claims court or suing him, but like, is it really going to be less than $2,500? And 
I just feel so stupid. <laughs> and I called my mom and I'm like crying to her because I'm so insecure about wasting money now that I'm an adult. Like I really want to be smart about it. And I'm being so hard on myself. And my mom's like, honey, gosh, you've just got to be easier on Shauna. And I was like, but all the things that you always did, like they were good for our family. I mean, they were a little weird, but you never like caught anything on fire. And she goes, honey, do you remember the stove? And then it all comes back. So I'm at college. My mom calls me. So what she had done was she had found a stove for deep, deep sale on a sidewalk sale. And she borrowed a truck and she put it in the truck bed, but she didn't have things to strap it down. So she just got on the freeway and thought that she would go very slowly. But the stove uh, lifted out (laughs) and flew and then landed on the freeway and... She was horrified, and all she kept saying to me on the phone was, I could have killed a baby! I could have killed a baby! And I was like, it took me 20 minutes to understand that no babies had been killed, just a very discounted bargain stove, and that it had gone to the shoulder, and everyone was fine, but the minutes that she was worried that she had killed a baby had taken, like, years off her life. So I think everyone makes stupid purchases sometimes, and we need to be forgiving. And the hot tub seems to work. And my mom is coming down tomorrow to try it out. We might get slowly electrocuted, like Terminator. I don't know. I'm like the one person who's never seen that movie. Is that what happens? Um, (laughs) But uh, she says if it doesn't work, she bought me a sitz bath, like the toilet basin. And she says she found it at her favorite thrift store. And don't worry, because she boiled it with hot water. But don't you worry, because I'm going to put on rubber gloves and throw it directly in the trash. (laughs) Thank you so much. I was told to relax and take a nice dip a nice warm bath from a crack to put a smile on my lips But something went wrong Uh, Things getting too hot The water is fine The inferno is not Hot tub on fire Hot tub on fire Hot tub on fire So on April 12th, uh, 1996, when I was 26 years old, I found myself standing outside the front door of my parents' house in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was frozen in place. I was paralyzed, and I was unable to lift my hand and reach out and open the door and go inside. And I was frozen in place because if I went through that door, I had to tell my very conservative, very Catholic parents that I was getting a divorce after eight months of marriage. 
That morning, I had put all my stuff into my little Ford Escort, and I had driven from Chicago to Cincinnati to tell my parents this news and to ask them if I could live with them again while I got my life in order. Now, you have to understand something about my parents. Um, They didn't have me till they were almost 40, so they were always a little more like my grandparents than they were my parents. They looked like my grandparents. My mom, still to this day, my mom is 87, and she has this white bouffant hairdo that she's had since the 1950s. And my dad always wore Buddy Holly horn rim glasses with a short sleeve white shirt. And he wasn't doing it to be ironic or hip. He just never got new glasses from the time he was in the Air Force in the 1950s. And when I was a kid growing up in this really conservative Catholic environment, my parents always judged and condemned anyone who got a divorce. If someone in the family got a divorce, my mom would invoke her mom, my grandmother, who had long been dead, and my mom would say, If grandma knew that Aunt Sally was getting a divorce, she would turn over in her grave. And I was a little kid, and I didn't understand metaphor very well. So when my mom would say that grandma was turning over in her grave, I literally pictured my dead grandmother thrashing in her coffin... And uh, the message was that divorce was so horrible and immoral that it could reanimate the dead with rage. (laughs) And I was so worried that my parents wouldn't accept this decision I had made, that we might butt head so much that they wouldn't let me stay with them, that I had made a backup plan. I had called my friend Ben who lived in Cincinnati, and I said, you know, I'm going to tell my parents this news. Um, If it doesn't work out, can I maybe sleep on your couch in your little studio apartment? It would be fun, right? So I had this backup plan in place. I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay with my parents uh, because, you know, they had more than one bedroom in their house or whatever, right? So I worked up the courage, and I went through the door into that familiar living room with that old striped furniture and the house that smelled like my dad's cigars, right? And there were my parents. Now, I'm not a parent, but I can figure out that if you are a parent and one of your children, who's supposed to be 300 miles away, walks through the door unannounced on a Friday afternoon in April you're going to freak out a little bit. You're going to think the worst. And I saw that on my parents' faces when I walked in the door. They looked at me like, what is wrong here, right? In fact, my dad looked at me. My dad, like I said, always smoked cigars, and he had this little stubby cigar in his mouth, and he looked at me, and he was like, what the hell are you doing here? You're supposed to be in Chicago, And so I decided before they thought anything worse, I would just rip the Band-Aid off and tell them what was going on. So I stood there in front of them and I said, Mom, Dad, 
Sarah and I are going to get a divorce. And immediately, my mom's eyes filled with tears, and she looked up to the heavens, or maybe just to the ceiling, I don't know what she was looking at, but she looked up and she said, oh, oh no, oh no, don't tell me you're here to tell me that. And so... I thought to myself, this is going about as bad as I thought it would go, right? I'm going to be sleeping on Ben's couch now, right? So I decided to take control of the situation. And I stepped up and I said, look, mom, dad, let's just sit down. Let's just talk about this rationally and calmly without a lot of drama, okay? And they listened to me. My mom sat down in her spot on the couch, and my dad sat in his favorite recliner, and I sat in between them, and they looked at me, their eyes wide, and the roles had kind of been reversed. Now they looked like little children, and they were scared, and I was the authority figure who was going to set things straight and tell them what was going on, and as they looked at me, eight months of repressed emotion and lying, and fear, and anxiety landed on top of me, and I broke down sobbing like I had not sobbed in front of my parents since I was probably five years old, heaving, convulsive sobbing right in front of them. So much for calm and rational discussion, right? (laughs) And as I'm sitting there crying, I remember my mom's voice cutting through my tears and my snot, and my mom said, and I'll never forget this sentence my mom said to me, she said, it's okay, David, you're home now. And so there had been this big balloon of pressure in my chest for months, and when she said that, the balloon deflated a little bit, and I thought, okay, maybe this can work out. Maybe we can have a meeting of the minds here. So I told them the whole story of why Sarah and I were getting a divorce. And I would really love to stand here and tell you that there was some crazy, wild story going on here, that Sarah was in the witness protection program, and she hadn't told me, and now we were on the run from mobsters or something like that. But unfortunately, there was nothing like that. Uh, It was really just that we got married in our 20s, we were young, and we were dumb, and we got married for the wrong reasons, and those eight months of being married really felt like eight years, and that's why the marriage had to end. So after I told my parents all of this, and they seemed to be listening and understanding, I told them the whole story, and the last thing my mom said to me when I had wrapped up this whole story was, she looked at me and she said, David, I hope and I pray that if you're ever in trouble again, if you're ever in that kind of situation, you will tell us the truth about what's going on so that we can help you. Now, I was so relieved that things had gone well with them and that I was welcomed back into my home, I would have agreed to anything. 
So naturally, I was like, yes, mom, yes. I'll never lie to you again. I promise, I promise I'll be a good boy, whatever, right? So that night, I got in touch with my friend, Ben, who still lived in town, and we went out to the bars because I was so relieved to be able to tell the truth to people, and I had this burden off of my back. And way in the back of my head, there was some dread because I knew that my problems weren't over yet. But I went out with Ben, and I drank a lot of beer. And then I drank a lot of shots. And these shots were like weird multicolored things. Some of them tasted like floor polish, and some of them tasted like licorice, which I don't even like, right? And so that was my evening, and around 2 o'clock that morning, long after my parents had, of course, gone to bed, Ben dropped me off at my parents' house. And for the second time that day, I approached the front door of my parents' house. I guess I shouldn't say I approached. I, I kind of stumbled to the front door of my parents' house. And this time, I desperately wanted and needed to get inside the house. Because I'm sure you know, if you mix a lot of alcohol together, you really need to get yourself to a bathroom. So I managed to get the key in the lock, and I got inside, and I dashed to the bathroom in my parents' house. Now, there's just one problem with my parents' house. They live in a very small, boxy little house that has one bathroom. And the one bathroom sits right next to my parents' bedroom. So you can't really do anything in that bathroom without my parents knowing about it. I don't know if you've ever tried to vomit quietly (laughs) or discreetly when you've been drinking, but it's almost impossible, right? So I went into the bathroom and I closed the door and I got down on my knees And all the stress and the strain and the emotion and all that alcohol and the nachos bel grande I had eaten earlier that night all came out of me in the bathroom. And when I was finished doing my thing, right, I kind of collapsed onto the tile floor of the bathroom, the pink tile floor that at one time was in style and then was out of style and now is back in style because my parents never changed it, right? And I pressed my face against the cool tile and I just kind of lay there wishing I was dead and the house was very quiet and then I heard footsteps coming down the hallway toward the bathroom. Very, very familiar footsteps and I knew this was my mom. And I knew it was my mom because I had been in that exact same spot several times in my life. Several times in high school or in college, I'd been out drinking and I'd come home and I'd gotten sick in the bathroom and I woke my mom up and she had come to the door and she would say, what's the matter? Are you sick? Have you been drinking, right? You have to know my mom was born 
when Herbert Hoover was president, okay? She grew up the child of a factory worker in Cincinnati during the Depression and during World War II, and they were really, really poor. She came of age in the 50s. She went right from my grandparents' house to being married, to being a mom, to being a grandmother. The idea of, like, sowing your wild oats and cutting loose would be about as foreign to her as going to Mars, right? And when I, I have older siblings, so when I was a kid and my older siblings would show up at the breakfast table all glassy-eyed and, you know, whatever, my mom would chew them out and say, why do you kids think it's fun to go out and get inebriated and then vomit all over my clean bathroom? So when she came outside the door, I flashed back to my high school days when she would appear outside the door, and I would lie to her in high school and in college. She would say, why are you getting sick? And I would say, I, I think there's a bug going around, Mom. I can tell you for a fact, all of my friends are vomiting right now, too. Or I would try to turn it back around on her and I would say, I think I have food poisoning, Mom. Don't you think that pot roast you made tonight looked a little gray and past its prime, right? And, you know, she would go away unsatisfied and that would be the end of it, right? So this night, the night I told them I was getting divorced, she appears outside the door, the closed door, and she asks me, what's wrong with me? Am I sick? And maybe because I was so emotionally drained, maybe because I was so drunk, or maybe because I listened to what she had said just a few hours earlier, I told her the truth. I just said, Mom, I am not sick. I am drunk, and that's why I am throwing up all over your clean bathroom right now. And there was a long pause from my mom's side of the door. And as I was lying there on the tile floor, I was thinking to myself, you know, if mom wants to come down on me right now, if she wants to drop the hammer on me and say to me, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to act like an adult and stop acting like an idiot? I felt like I probably deserved that. Because here's the situation. I was 26 years old, I was unemployed, I had just moved back into my childhood bedroom with the posters of Bob Dylan and Echo and the Bunnymen still on the wall from high school, I owed $20,000 on a student loan that I couldn't pay off, I owed about $6,000 on my little ratty Ford Escort. I had left Chicago that morning with, no exaggeration, about $73 to my name, some of which had already been spent on beer and Taco Bell and important things like that, right? And I knew that when I woke up the next morning, I had to find a lawyer and I had to begin the process of getting a divorce. So from my mom's point of view, I probably looked like a disaster. So after that long pause on her side of the door, she finally said, well, 
if you've been drinking that much, you should drink a lot of water before you go to bed. And you should probably take some Tylenol too. It will really help you with your hangover. And then she walked away. And I look back at that day, which sometimes I think was the longest day of my life, and I realize that that was a turning point. I didn't lie to my parents about things anymore, big or small. And I understood that I couldn't underestimate them, that they were up to the challenge of understanding me if I gave them the chance to do that. And my mom was right about several other things. She was right that I was home and that I was safe. And that next morning when I woke up, my hangover from that long day was not nearly as bad as I thought it would be. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Echo and the Bunnymen behind me now. You know, when David Bell, who you just heard, and I were in high school, this was one of his very, very, very favorite bands. He was very passionate about Echo and the Bunnymen, so I decided to play them here. Don't forget, his new novel, Layover, is at davidbellnovels.com and wherever books are sold. It is extraordinary. It, it keeps you guessing till the very, very end. It's fantastic. It's the kind of thing someone should make a movie out of that novel and several others of his. Someone should make some movies of some of these 1,300 stories we featured on Risk as well. We have talked to some folks about facilitating that sort of thing before. As always, I'm at Kevin at Risk-Show.com. And before David Bell, we heard an interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now I want to talk to you about how you don't have time to be going to the post office anymore. That's why Stamps.com is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio. And right now, 
Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story on today's show was really moving. It was shared at a recent Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City, where we do the show once a month. This is Tracy Starin, who you can find on Instagram at Tracy.Starin. And here she is now with the story we call Origin Story. He asked, and I said yes. And it was all happening. We were celebrating with friends, we were registering for towels, we were gathering the money that we'd saved for years to buy an apartment. We were planning our honeymoon, two weeks in the Pacific Northwest. We hadn't had much of a chance to travel together because we were always working and going to school and saving money. And this was gonna be the first of many trips we were planning. I was sending out resumes because it was time for me to take the next step in my career. We had a great life. And we had great friends who were a huge part of our lives. I was that friend that everybody called when something was going on. Will you come with me to pick out furniture? Will you read my manuscript and let me know what you think? Will you help me write my resume? We all had so many plans and nothing seemed out of reach. One day, on our way home from going to a wedding venue, I started to notice small differences in my vision. It was just a a dark spot, a small spot in the very corner of my eye. It was so small that I wasn't sure it was there. And I dismissed it. But then it grew. And I decided in the middle of the planning and the being and the having and the doing that I needed to go to an eye doctor. He took one look at my eye and he knew what it was instantly. I got my marriage license and my diagnosis on the same day. I had a neurological disorder where my head filled up with spinal fluid and it caused my optic nerves to swell. So they sent me to the hospital for treatment. I exchanged my two weeks in the Pacific Northwest for two weeks at New York Presbyterian Hospital in beautiful Washington Heights. (laughs) Though by the time my ordeal was over, it would be six weeks in the hospital, seven spinal taps, and two brain surgeries later. When I came home, everything was different. Part of my vision was gone. I had surgical wounds that were still healing, including a hole in my skull and a scalp full of staples. I had to leave my job. I couldn't go out of the house by myself. I couldn't take a shower if I was home alone because I was a falling hazard. I couldn't bend over to tie my shoes. I had been an avid reader my whole life, and now I couldn't see well enough to read books. I couldn't put a key in a lock. 
simple tasks that I had done every day of my life without thinking about were now insurmountable to me. I would stab and stab and stab at a lock with the key and not be able to find the keyhole. And out of frustration and embarrassment, burst into tears until somebody came to help me. I needed help with everything, every day. One day, my husband dropped me off in front of my mother's house, and I couldn't find my way to the front door. I just stood on the curb, lost, not knowing which direction to walk in, until my husband jumped out of the car and walked me inside. And every time something like that happened, it hit us in the face how different our lives were now. My friends didn't know what to say to me. Suddenly, I wasn't as useful as I was before. Most of them said nothing. My phone stopped ringing. I stopped hearing from them. During this time, I spent a lot of time at home alone, feeling lost, feeling frustrated, feeling helpless. I spent a lot of time daydreaming and watching old movies. And one of the movies that I watched all the time was that old Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, the original one. That was actually the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater as a child, because I'm old. And (laughs) it started a lifelong love of Caped Crusaders. And I started to wonder, am I in the middle of my own origin story? Superheroes' powers are revealed to them during times of extreme adversity. I thought, is that what's happening to me? Is that why this happened? Am I going to find out what my strengths are? I can't see. Maybe my senses of hearing and my sense of smell will get sharper. But no superpowers were becoming apparent. I certainly didn't have super speed. Everything in my life slowed down. And I couldn't walk through walls. I couldn't even stop myself from walking into them. It would be over a year of recovery before I would find any kind of normalcy. But with a lot of effort, my husband and I found a new normal. With my hands out in front of me, I learned my way to feel my way through the world. I felt my way across walls. With my hands on the banister, I felt my way up and down the stairs. I even was able to feel a key into the lock. The first time I did that was a personal victory. I arranged my apartment so that I knew where everything was all the time. And I learned how to do the little tasks. I learned how to adjust. I started listening to audiobooks. I learned how to need and accept help, like having somebody read me a menu in a restaurant. And we coasted along in this new version of my life for quite some time. We started going to plays and movies and concerts again. Five years, almost to the week of my first hospitalization, I had a relapse. It was more, and I came out with less. Less vision, and this time having to take a fistful of pills every day and having to follow up with specialists. I was weak, I was tired. It would be a much longer period of adjustment this time. 
At this point, I abandoned the search for superpowers. It seemed pointless to look for evidence that I could fly when I could barely stand. It would take a long time before we found that new, new normal again. And I lived in constant fear of another relapse. That five-year mark came and went without another relapse, and I was very happy, but I never breathed a sigh of relief because I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then one summer day, we were driving home from the Museum of the Moving Image, and we were in a terrible car accident. We were very, very lucky because the car was totaled, but with the exception of some bumps and bruises and some broken ribs, we literally walked away from the accident, except my hand. My right hand, my dominant hand, got mangled. My hands are how I process the world. And now I wasn't gonna have my hand. I was gonna have to relearn how to do everything without my eyes and without one of my hands. Once again, all those simple tasks, tying my shoes, putting a key in the lock, became insurmountable to me. I felt like without my hand, I was losing touch with the world. I was losing my grip on reality. And it was overwhelming. And again, I felt helpless. I felt lost. And I didn't know how I was going to get through it. I didn't know how I was going to adjust this time to find another new normal. It would be eight months of physical therapy and over a dozen visits to a specialist. And I would not have the use of my hand for the better part of a year. And in the middle of it, one day, I was home alone in my living room, feeling desperate, feeling hopeless. And I walked over to the chair, and out of sheer emotional exhaustion, I didn't even sit in the chair. I slumped to a heap on the floor. And I said out loud to nobody, almost in tears, I keep trying, but things keep happening. I keep trying, but things keep happening. I keep trying, but things keep happening. And I let out a long, low sigh. And just at that minute, the sun shifted a little bit and a thin beam of light broke through the curtain and landed right on my leg. And I felt like I had been struck by lightning. And I thought to myself, if I shift a little bit, I can change my outlook on everything and put everything in a new light. And then I said out loud, almost exuberantly, things keep happening, but I keep trying. Things keep happening, but I keep trying. Things keep happening, but I keep trying. And that's when I discovered my superpower. Resilience. It's everywhere I look, from Las Vegas to right here, 
under your dresser, right by your ear. It's creeping in sweetly, it's definitely here. There's nothing more deadly than slow growing fear. Life was full and fruitful, and you could take a real bite. The juice pouring well over your skin's delight. But the shadow it grows and takes the depth away. Even broken down pieces to this priceless ballet. The shallower it grows, the shallower it grows. The fainter we go into the fade out line. The shallower it grows, the shallower it grows. The fainter we go into the fade out line. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Phoebe Kildeer and the short straws behind me now. And we just heard from Tracy Starin, who you can find on Instagram at tracy.starin. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. And... How do you pitch us? You go to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a little video there. There's an audio there. There's all sorts of helpful tips there on how to pitch us your story and how to start workshopping your story. And remember, if we do choose you for the show, we will help you through a whole workshopping process to get ready for the show. So that's all at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. The shallower it grows, the shallower it grows, the fainter we go into the fade out line. The shallower it grows, the shallower it grows, the fainter we go into the fade out line. The shallower it grows, the shallower it grows, the fainter we made us stronger and set us on the path to a bright future. Setback!